double Elvis. Recently, in my current world of 2021, I watched as my grandmother suffered through dementia. I watched as her face changed into something. Her blissful, aimless gaze, with her eyes glazing over. The way time moved for her. The way faces began to change. How she eventually forgot each of us and any memory attached to us. The look on her face when I would enter the room and she would try and speak, but the words felt caught in the air as she opened her mouth and nothing came out. You could see she forgot what she was about to say. It was hello and my name, but she no longer remembered it. The fear that you could see in her eyes and the embarrassment she tried to hide by pretending she knew who we all were. As the dementia progressed, her eyes became more and more filled with a fog and an indescribable bliss that was reminiscent of my time with amnesia. You could see the connections of threads she was trying to tie and piece together, lie there now willingly a tangled bird nest of string, as she submitted to the never-ending compile of loose ends she could no longer understand. She was gone, but still here. My grandmother died of cancer during the pandemic. Over the last few months of her life, she enjoyed sitting on the porch and watching the birds in our front yard. She would whistle, and they would communicate back, as if to signal that she was understood. It was happening again. Her face was mirroring my own facial expressions back in 2013. An expression of never knowing what is truly around you and playing along. A terrifying nothingness, unwillingly brought into another dimension. You could see it in the eyes. Terrifying bliss. I want to tell my story so I never forget who I am, but also for others suffering in similar ways. Even though amnesia sounds like something ridiculous from some sort of telenovela, I think we all over time lose pieces of ourselves that we wish we could hold on to. Moments and people and objects and memories. Moments we wish we could never forget, but eventually will. The mundane, the extraordinary, and all the little things that shape us. We never even realized collecting along the way. The song your friend played on repeat in the car after your first boyfriend broke up with you. You drove around aimlessly together, singing the lyrics louder and louder with each play, until eventually you forgot you'd been crying all morning. The first time your grandfather handed you a guitar and taught you how to strum at five years old. The pint of Ben and Jerry's creme brulee ice cream you pass back and forth through grates of bunk beds and in between swing sets late in the night after your best friend came home for the first time since college. That Fiona Apple album you had on repeat the entire summer. They don't make my favorite ice cream flavor anymore. And friends move away. But sometimes they come back into your life in new ways, in new cities and what feels like another lifetime. The people you love will pass away, but it's so hard to remember that in that moment when you're with them.
I wish I could remember what toothpaste you preferred, or your favorite juice for breakfast, or how you liked your eggs, or what your hair smelled like. I never want to forget anything ever again. We all have moments that shape us throughout our lifetime, and none of us will be here forever. But you aren't alone in this. I love you, and I never want to forget you. Any of me, and either of us, ever again. This is my way of coping with what feels like the inevitable. The back and forth, the gain and loss of growing up and growing old. The story of how music brought me back to who I was is unbelievable. Most people didn't believe me. But no one ever asked me my side of the story. Until now. Dear young rocker, there might be moments when you try and push through. It's important to know when you should push through and when you need to rest. Remember whether you are bouncing around on stage screaming your head off or working from bed, take a breath and rest. A few weeks had passed since the accident, or maybe it was two. Time started to feel like something completely foreign to me. And I don't mean the type of unfamiliarity that occurs when you're traveling through different time zones or countries, waking up in the middle of the night in cities where no one can understand the language that you speak, waking up and thinking you're in your own bed to find a window facing you, a view that isn't normally there. The fog was thicker than any jet lag I had ever experienced. It was worse than the time I got stuck at LaGuardia Airport for three days straight hopping from train to bus to train to taxi in hopes of returning home in time for the first day back to school. Carrying your vintage suitcase in both arms now as you were unable to balance the weight of the suitcase with multiple sleepless nights. This was waking up in your own bed, drifting from one dream into another, an endless false awakening loop until your tired, sleepless mind gives up and submits itself into a more mundane, blank space. I sat in my bedroom trying to piece it all together. Where I had been, what I had been doing, it was all just blank. I sat there looking around my bedroom at all the pieces of someone's life, of my life, Things that represented moments, lengths of time, people I had met throughout my life, and the moments we'd share together. Objects that represented that space and time that meant something to me. But that meaning was now something I was trying to find. A small clay house I made as a child hangs on the wall in the hallway next to my bedroom door. 
a snapshot of me standing in front of the Grand Canyon during a cross-country road trip, hanging in my kitchen, a closet full of tea dresses collected over a decade. None of it felt like anything I recognized. They were pieces from someone else's life. Earlier that week, I'd been taken to the doctor and they diagnosed me with amnesia. They said it would pass with time and to go home and rest. They wrote this down on a little piece of paper and handed it to me to keep. Take this to your neurologist and have them check you out. I went home immediately after to rest as much as I could. I didn't have a neurologist. I didn't even have health insurance. I was a 23-year-old orphan. I wasn't sure what to do. People kept taking me to the school clinic whenever I tried to leave the house. I would end up in the offices of doctors I didn't know. I didn't know where I was or how I ended up there. Eventually, I would just end up back home. I sat at my harp stool for hours, looking around my bedroom, hoping to gather the self that lay in front of me, hoping it would inhabit my body like some haunting ghost. I sat there in a forever silence until there was a knock on my door. It was Nate. He was checking in on me. I can't remember whether it was the first time he had seen me since the accident or the fifth, but I knew he was one of the ones that showed up the most. He seemed to know what was going on. He sat on my twin bed and stared back at me, a look of concern all over his face. I sat on a stool in front of my harp and started to cry as it began to sink in what he was concerned about. I was supposed to perform a show tomorrow at a venue in the village. I had thought and hoped and wished this would be over by now that this was all a really bad dream, that I would somehow wake up, but it only seemed to be getting worse. I couldn't remember how to even play my harp. I sat down to practice and it was like I'd never even seen a harp before in my entire life. Even the first day I'd gotten my harp didn't feel like this. Before the accident, the music I had composed in my brain for years came out effortlessly, just as I had envisioned it would after years of watching Alice Coltrane, Harpo Marx, and Joanna Newsom playing the harp, endlessly on repeat, mimicking their motions in the air as one mouth's lyrics to remember a tune. It was like I had felt it before, and the connection from my brain to my hands, the muscle memory was already there the day I had gotten my harp my Augie, my love. And now it felt as if it had never happened. That past life experience was completely gone. I couldn't even remember a single song I'd written or how to play at all. I sat there scared and unsure what to do. I couldn't even remember how to hold my hands in place. I cupped my face in my palms and my hands and sobbed. Why was this happening to me? And when would it end? Why couldn't I shake it? What was I going to do? How would I perform tomorrow? 
My songs are around five to eight minutes long. They wove in and out of different time signatures with sudden and sporadic changes of melody. Nate moved in closer and took both of my hands in his. He looked me in the eyes and told me that it would come back to me. That I just had to rest and everything would be okay. I was so scared. But if I could never play music again, what would I do? I was scheduled to play at a known punk venue, which was hard enough. What if I got on stage and made a complete fool of myself? At that moment, the doorbell rang. It was the neighbor across the street coming over to let me know that I left my car sitting in the driveway for hours with the trunk and all the doors left open. I had no memory of leaving my house, no memory of the crate of eggs that sat warm in my front seat or the carton of juice in the trunk with the plastic bag sprung open. No memory of ever even being in a grocery store, but the proof was overflowing with the contents consuming my back seat. How was I ever going to play the show? Young Rocker. Maybe I could just continue to laugh it off. A photo of me on my Instagram from earlier that day with the caption that read, hashtag double fisting, as I held two smoothies in my hands. I bet those were enjoyable. I have to assume I couldn't have made up my mind and had ordered one of everything that I wanted. I started rewarding myself for leaving the house and making any efforts. Maybe if I just continued to try and piece things together through the notes scattered about and find ways to communicate with myself, work around my limitations, maybe I could live like this. With the help of Instagram journaling and washable Sharpies, ballpoint blue ink scribbled on my hands, I can make this work. I will make this work. I just had to make it to the show tonight. Maybe once I got on stage, it would all come back to me. Nate said that the the best best thing thing to do was just to not worry about it. And that it would all probably come back to me. Something Something was going to work out. I don't know why, but I continued to believe him. The next thing I remember was standing outside of the venue and telling my friend Taylor, who was the door guy, about my concussion. I told him that I was afraid I wouldn't be able to play and was just hoping this would all end soon. He told me that he'd had a concussion before and it took weeks to feel normal again. Two weeks? I couldn't imagine another week of this. I didn't have any more time. I needed this to be over right now like right this second. I was about to step onto a stage in front of a packed venue full of people, 
in an attempt to play the harp for what felt like the very first time in my entire life. The next thing I remember was sitting on stage next to my harp, with the lights blinding me. I could feel the room was stirring with bodies, elbows touching elbows as people pushed close to see an instrument that stood taller than myself. I didn't need to be able to know what was in front of me to hear it, to feel it. An entire room, hundreds of eyes, now all resting their gaze on me. Would I even remember how to do this? I started to panic, but tried not to think about it. Tried to just let it come to me. I knew that no matter what happened, I was still here. And this was now. And there was nothing I could do in this moment. I put my hands in an upright position, took a deep breath, and held the weight of what felt like everything in the world. The weight of this moment that felt like forever, breathing in and hold. I came to in what felt like from a dream. I had my hands held out and the crowd was cheering as the last note, C, rang out. I had sleptwalked right onto the stage and was awoken by chanting, clapping, and cheering. After a fully completed set and an endless standing ovation, like dreaming of waking up in your school classroom, wearing nothing but your underwear, and you're embarrassed, but you embrace the circumstances that led you to this embarrassing fate. And you aren't sure whether it is real or not as you awake in a cold sweat. What was I doing there? I had no memory of what I had just done, but it was done. I guess it went really well. Thank you so much. The crowd went silent while I tried to offer a gracious thank you. Um, my name is Nadia Marie, and I have a concussion right now. The roar of the crowd felt like a mob at a political campaign. I raised my fist like a drunken frat boy in the air. I'm not sure what cause I was representing in this moment, but everyone seemed to be on board. I had made it through. I had faked my way through my own reality. Again. The crowd continued to cheer as I took a bow. It wasn't practical, but I was still on stage. Thinking, let's just laugh this off and this will make it better. Laughing will make it end quicker. I was open with people about my concussion and that I was a little out of it but only because I didn't know better while in the state of complete confusion, of not knowing how to get back to where I once was. It was embarrassing, but I was too stoned from the fog to know I should even feel any humiliation from sleepwalking around my own life. 
I was open with people about my concussed state, fumbling around my own life like a drunk, apologizing through every mishap. The next thing I remember was standing in the parking lot under a blinding streetlight. My trunk was open. My harp stood in front of me. I was picking up the harp to load it in the trunk of my car. Twin beings similar in height, one lifting the other into an SUV while wearing a pair of heels. Suddenly I heard the sound of someone running up behind me as I closed the trunk. A girl came up to me and asked me for my autograph. It seemed very silly to me, but incredibly sweet and kind. I told her that I was immensely thankful she took the time to watch me perform, and I asked her for her name, knowing there was a strong possibility I wouldn't be able to recall it tomorrow. No matter how bad I wanted to, no matter how much the interaction between us meant to me, I thanked her again for coming to my show, and I can only assume immediately went home to go back to bed. I can only assume at this point. There is no memory of what happened after, and still to this day, that first month is only fragments in my mind. Little puzzle pieces I string together, trying to force fit into a space and time. If I was somehow able to play a show in this concussed autopilot state, and if music connected me back to myself in that moment, if music is what transported me back to who I was, maybe I could try to recreate the other night and help me find a way back to where I was before all of this happened. But before I could consider trying to even think about music, I was back on bed rest, back to the very start, it seemed everything that I did set me back. Playing the show made me hopeful, but also a little worse. It's really hard to explain the tallies I was keeping score of to try and maintain equilibrium to now function. Something I would have to explain for what felt like forever. To any and everyone. To believe what I was going through. To believe what I needed. To help me get back to where I was. I didn't feel well enough to leave my room or to go to school, but I also felt at times I was maybe well enough to try. It was like having a fever you didn't realize you had until you were in the middle of a drive to meet some friends. You became too ill by the time you made it there. So ill you could hardly speak or move to make it home. Maybe I just needed a few more days. I had to push myself just enough to bring a piece of myself back. The piece that mattered to me the most. The piece that belonged on a stage. After another two days in bed, I felt okay, but the fog started to shift again. Nate came to my house after work to check in on me again. It felt nice not to have to go through this alone. To have a friend there to know someone knew what was going on and could see what I was going through. I wasn't fully sure to what extent he was there for me, but I knew that he was. I could just feel it. It felt familiar and safe and kind. One day Nate asked me to join him and our friend Ted at a kickball game an hour outside of town. 
He told me he wanted me to get out of the house, and he convinced me it would be exactly what I needed. When I tried to decline, he said no, he wouldn't take I'm no for an answer. answer. I tried to tell him that I thought the fog was getting worse, but he said that all I needed was a night out. Obviously, we both just sat on the sidelines. He had been opening up to me, hinting at some hardships with his love life, his living arrangements, and his circumstances, and told me this was what he needed too. During the car ride down, Nate asked hey, me if I was okay. You, uh, doing all right? His voice sounded concerned as he turned to look at me in the back seat of his car. Our friend Ted sat up front. Me? Yeah, I'm, I'm fine. Why? I felt completely fine. I felt almost normal. A little tired, but better than I had been feeling. Um, you're slurring your speech a little bit. In my mind, my voice sounded how it usually sounded in my head. Completely fine. I felt completely fine. I felt like I was getting better. But now I was starting to second-guess myself and everything else around me. I knew I felt a little stoned from the concussion, but I wasn't aware that it was obvious to those around me that anything was amiss with my mannerisms or my speech. I thought I was hiding it well. The boys talked up front in the car, having heart-to-heart -heart and catching up on typical things. Work, family, girls, and music. Nate confessed to Ted that he had left his girlfriend, that things weren't working out, and that he was expressing how hard it had been. I remember thinking, is this what it's like? Do guys just unload their feelings to other men like this, as women do? We just never hear about it? Is it something they keep discreet while they spit into each other's palms and grunt in unison? We finally, we finally ended things. I broke up, I with, broke her. up with her. Really it was really hard, but I think it will be good for both of us. I think, I think it's what we both want and need right now. I'll be I'll moving be out, and I've already found a few places around town. I felt so horrible for him. I was really glad we were friends and that we could be there for one another during this really difficult time. It was weird watching this conversation from the back seat. Something about it felt like sitting in the back row of a movie theater, looking out at the screen. Two of your friends, going for a drive, windows down, music on, having an intimate talk about their twin heartbreaks in the front seat while a wallflower sat in the back. It felt like growing up. A moment even a concussion couldn't erase.
I would never be able to play my harp again after that show, at least not in the same way, with the same feeling, or as if I had done it before. My hands would know all the motions, but my heart wasn't in love in the same way. My brain wouldn't remember in the same way. Months later, when I did remember, it wouldn't feel the same. It would feel completely different. It would sound completely different. I was different. Years after, my harp would become the most expensive coat rack to ever exist. Throw blankets, scarves, and coats would be draped around the harp's neck with nowhere else to go. I never reconnected with it emotionally after that one night, the way I once had. The soulmate connection I had with this instrument was gone. It was like hooking up with an ex years after a breakup. It was brutal and a sudden divorce, falling out of love with someone I had been in love with my entire life. I spent my entire youth wanting to play the harp, craving it. I could feel it on my fingers. I would crave the wire and nylon sensations and the way the weight felt pushing up against my chest. The bass notes that resonated through every inch of me felt warm. The harp was an extension of my body, of myself. I knew it would be before I ever even touched one. The connection I had to the harp was cosmic. I was composing songs for the harp in my head before I ever had the privilege of being in the same room as one. I would practice in my daydreams, learning my parts and prepping for the arrival date. But the harp was also the first and only lie I ever told. Growing up, I didn't have any rules. Well, almost none. The only rule in our house was that you were never allowed to lie. Lying was the worst thing you could ever do. We could go out and drink and party. I didn't have a curfew. There were no rules as long as everything I did was done in truth and with intention. I couldn't lie to anyone, not even myself. Anything I did had to be something I meant, something I was proud of, something grounded in truth. My mother didn't care at what age I started having sex, just as long as it was done with intention and was an action done with love and care, and it wasn't a lie. We had to mean what we did and live honestly and openly, no matter what that meant or looked like. It's now become a sick part of my OCD brain. I can never lie. Don't ever ask me what I think of something unless you want the truth. I physically don't know how to lie. We were told something bad would happen if we ever told a lie. About anything. And at a moment's notice, we had to reveal what we were thinking and feeling, or else it was a lie. Nothing was private. Nothing was sacred or remained within our own brains. We were expected to blurt out our thoughts and feelings, but that didn't mean our emotional needs would be met. And if we didn't, 
this meant we were lying to ourselves and to each other. In adulthood, I would struggle to understand how others never voiced their concerns or their opinions or thoughts or feelings and how not voicing one's own feelings and emotions wasn't a form of lying. Over time, I realized what was and wasn't healthy about the types of rules and behaviors we had to oblige by in our household and what forced me into an early departure from it. The only time I ever accidentally made an attempt to tell a lie, it was about the one true love I ever had, the heart. I was 15 years old, shy, awkward, having just moved into town after starting my third high school in one year. I was performing at a small venue, and afterwards a woman came up to talk to me. She told me that she loved the songs I had written and asked me what instruments I play. And so I told her. Or at least I told her what I felt like I played. What my heart desired to play and longed for and kept me up at night, dreaming, lusting, plucking the air, thumb and pointer, thumb and ring finger. I played piano, which was true, guitar, also true, bass, an occasional love, and harp, a little white lie. I knew it wasn't technically a lie, because I knew deep down I could play the harp. I had been playing it for years in my dreams. I had plucked the air following the compositions I made. I had corrections about which fingers to use, swapping out notes when the structures sounded flat, or shifting rhythms as I made my way through the second octave change. I just technically didn't have a harp yet. I just needed an hour alone to be in the same room with the harp. That's all it would take, I'm sure. To be honest, in this moment, it just slipped out of my mouth. And as soon as I realized I was saying it out loud, I tried to catch the words but realized it was too late. So I decided to just write out my embarrassment. I immediately felt completely mortified that I'd said that. It just slipped off my tongue. I thought it. And then I said it. It just came out of my mouth. So much shame filled my body that my stomach started to flip. I had what felt like an out-of-body experience. I knew I could technically play the harp. I just had to get my hands on one. A small technicality. I was sure that this gut-wrenching feeling would pass. I doubt I'll ever see this woman again. Who is this even? She was a stranger. I was sure months or years from now, I would have my harp, and she would run into me at another venue in some other city. Completely by chance, we'd meet again, as strangers often do. And at this point, I would have been playing the harp for years. I would explain the lie I told, and we would have ourselves a laugh. So maybe it wasn't too bad of a thing that I just did, I thought. 
Regardless of the innocence of this slip-up, I had no intention of lying. I knew I had just lied, and it made me physically sick. I reassured myself again, I don't think I'll ever see this woman again. I know any day now I'll have my own harp, and this will just be something to laugh at. She walked away, and I stood there for a moment in a panic over what I had just done. It really was the first time I'd ever let a daydream turn into a lie, one that just slipped from my lips. Just then, a new friend from my new school ran up to me. Nadia, you told my mom you play the harp? I was absolutely, painfully, catastrophically mortified. This moment still haunts me, even through my adult years. This moment is something I think about constantly, the guilt and shame of sharing a desire with someone, or sharing a lie with someone, or lying to even a stranger. It wasn't getting caught that made me physically sick. It was telling someone something that wasn't true yet, no matter how much I knew I would make it happen. I knew, never again, would I ever tell a lie. Even if I knew the thing I'd spoken would someday not be a lie. Even if I felt it was a white lie that would someday come true. Lies truly come back to haunt you. I was lucky. I got off easy. My friend thought it was funny. She just laughed, a little confused. Less than a year later, when I actually got my hands on a harp, I was able to afford the monthly payments for two months. But that was more than enough time to live out my fantasy to perfect every note I had envisioned and every composition that I had written in my head. Within a week, I could play everything I had written, including a few covers I thought would work with the strings. Two-Headed Boy and Hallelujah. Since I couldn't read or write or transcribe music, I was thankful for having a photographic memory. The compositions I'd written were just idling there in my brain, waiting to be performed. Sometimes I would write lyrics with little scribbles in the margins, like, sounds like he wore from Cat Power, but this specific word, right here, when she says this, meaning that I was to play an F or an A right there. The silly little shorthand, ways I remembered notes without ever knowing their names, the sound resonating in my chest felt exactly how I thought it would feel. It felt like love, complete, whole, endless love. A love that filled my entire body with contentment. I never thought that feeling would go away or would ever shift. I was sure that there was nothing that could take that feeling away from me. Whether my harp was near or far, it didn't matter. We were always connected. I named him Augie, 
since he was a lion in Healy, Ogden Harp, and deemed him the love of my life. It didn't matter if I had to give Augie back to the store. It didn't matter if years would pass before our souls would meet again. I knew we wouldn't skip a beat once we were reunited. Because that's what love felt like, and I would do anything to get him back. I knew it was only a matter of time. I'd just have to work a second job and balance high school and online night classes. My other full-time job, AP classes, and living expenses. I was a junkie for that feeling of love between us. The lust and secrets we shared. The tactile connection we had. The vibrations that flickered against my chest. I would eventually gain custody of a new Augie four years later. My second harp was the most successful relationship I ever had. I continued to call my harp Augie as a tribute to the one that got away. My short-lived summer romance with him. I knew I would eventually get my harp back one day and finish the album that I'd written. I continued to write songs in my head until the day finally happened years later. My harp was my soulmate. It was my love and a part of me. But after amnesia, I found my soulmate felt like a stranger. The bond we had cultivated over the last decade was gone. It was the biggest heartbreak I ever had, not being able to pull Augie out of the abyss. The sense of loss is a void I haven't been able to fill ever since the accident. I was thankful I had so many years with Augie and that we were reunited for a short period of time. And I remember the feeling of playing and that feeling of that single little lie I ever told turning into truth. Dear Young Rocker, Season 4. We've got 12 episodes coming this season. Check back every Wednesday for new episodes on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you want to share your own Young Rocker experience, you can follow me on Instagram at Nadia Marie Forever. You can also follow us at Dear Young Rocker and at Double Elvis on Instagram. This season of Dear Young Rocker is written and hosted by me, Nadia Marie. Dear Young Rocker was created by and is executive produced by Chelsea Erson. 
The show is executive produced by Jake Brennan, Brady Sadler, and Carly Carioli for Double Office. Script editing on this episode by Chelsea Erson and James Sullivan. Production by Sean Cahalan and Leah Tatoris. Music for this episode was composed and performed by me, Nadia Marie. You can check out my music, Nadia Marie, on all streaming platforms. Thanks. We'll see you next week.